All right. As the kids uh, head out, if you would, take your Bible, and as Corey mentioned earlier, open to Matthew chapter 9. If you have a phone that has access to God's Word, feel free to, to open that up. We want you to be able to, to follow along with us this morning. If you're not familiar with your Bible, the Bible is divided into generally two parts. There's an Old Testament part at the beginning, and then the New Testament, which begins about two-thirds of the way into the, into the Bible. Matthew is the first book in the New Testament. There, there are books called the Gospels that begin the New Testament, four Gospels, and Matthew is the first of those that tells the good news of, of Jesus' life and ministry and what he came to be all about. And so Matthew is the book that we've been looking at for the last several months. We're looking at the end of Matthew chapter 9 this morning. Next week, we'll look at Matthew chapter 10. And so I would encourage you, if you're not in the habit of reading the Bible during the week, just begin this week with reading Matthew chapter 10. That's the passage we'll be looking at in in some depth next Sunday morning. And then after next Sunday morning, we're going to start a new series of messages called, Who is God? When we talk about God, when we say the word God, when we say we believe in God, what do we mean by that? And, and, And how does that impact our life? And how does that compare with what other people believe about God? And so as we go into the summer, that's going to be our focus is understanding who God is and why that matters in our lives. But this morning we're ending with, that we're looking at the end of Matthew chapter 9. And throughout the history of the church, one of the greatest gifts that God has given to the church is songwriters. Songwriters who are able to take the truth of God's word, turn that into music, and then present that to the church. You have to remember that for most of church history, people have not been literate. They haven't known how to read. And so most of the people, if you look across church history, most of the people who have believed in Jesus and attended a church meeting didn't read. We assume today that most people are able to read, but that hasn't been the case throughout most of history. And so the way people learn the Bible, the way people learn theology, the way they learn what it means to follow Jesus is through music. And I've been amazed at my own kids, what kids are able to memorize when you put it to music. It's one thing just to to read something, to see something, but when you put it to music, people memorize things. They remember things that they wouldn't remember otherwise. And so it's just an incredible gift that we're able to have people like Corey who can take God's word and turn it into music. And, And frankly, and this doesn't bother me too much, I know you're going to remember songs long after you forget my sermons, and that's just the nature of it. That's, not, that's just human nature that we're going to be drawn to music in that way, and so, so I'm thankful for the chance for our church to learn this new song about how God gives us eyes, eyes to see. All right, let's read these verses at the end of, the end of Matthew chapter 9. We're going to start in verse 35, and we're going to read 35 through 38. It says, Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel. Gospel is just a fancy word for good news. Proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. 
Therefore, beseech, beseech isn't a word we use very often, but ask or pray that the Lord of the harvest would send out workers into his harvest. Father, we thank you for your word. We know that we've come this morning to, to hear from you by the work of your Holy Spirit. God, we pray that these verses combined with the psalms that we've seen, combined with the people that we've interacted with, would draw us closer to you. God, that we would see more clearly and, and understand more deeply what it means to worship you and follow you. We know we don't gather because of, of ritual. We don't gather to hear anybody's opinions. Father, we really do just want to hear from you and what it means to follow after you and worship you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the things we've seen in Matthew's gospel as we've been studying it over the last few years is Matthew years. It seems like a few years. It's actually only been a few months. But uh, as we've been studying Matthew's gospel is that Matthew is a very intentional and a very careful author. He, he puts his story together in a way that you can follow the structure of what he's doing. If you look in your phone or you look in your Bible back at verse 35, it says that Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, and it says, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Now, it would be easy just to read that and move on, but that verse is actually almost an exact replica of what you find in Matthew chapter 4, verse 23. Now, I know that this tests your eyesight, so don't worry too much about being able to read this in particular, but the words that are underlined on the left is Matthew 9.35. On the right is Matthew 4.23. The words underlined are exactly the same in both passages. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, Matthew is introducing us to what Jesus' ministry is going to be about, what Jesus is going to talk about, what Jesus is going to do. Chapters 5, 6, and 7 are what we call the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus talks about this is what the kingdom is going to be about. Chapters 8 and 9, Jesus heals people, he cures sickness, he does everything Matthew said he was going to do. And then in Matthew 9.35, the author comes back and says, and this is what Jesus has done. And, and so he's kind of bookending, he's putting the same phrase on the beginning of Jesus' words and actions and on the end of Jesus' words and actions. And at the very middle of that passage is the word kingdom. And the word kingdom is the clue to understanding what Jesus' ministry and what Jesus' life is all about. The word kingdom or the word king is used 74 times in the book of Matthew. This is Matthew's word for understanding why Jesus existed, why he taught people, why he cured people. It was all about the kingdom, which is difficult for us because we live in a world where we don't talk about kingdoms very much. About the only place that you're going to hear the word keen is if you're watching the NBA Finals right now. And, and that's really about the only place that we talk about the keen in, in our world today. But in this world, it would have made perfect sense to talk about the kingdom. The kingdom is any place in any group of people who acknowledge God as keen and live for his purposes. So if you need a definition for what the kingdom is, it's wherever people acknowledge God is king and live for her, his purposes. Jesus' ministry 
was about bringing God's kingdom to this world. To show people this is what it looks like to worship God. This is what it looks like to follow him. This is what it looks like to live for his purposes. And so Jesus sets this up. And then in verse 36, he moves to this key phrase that Corey told you about earlier. Verse 36, it says, seeing the people. Or or some translations in your phone or your Bible may say something like, when he saw the crowds. This word for seeing, and if you want to take your bulletin or that worship guide that you got when you came in and turn it over to the back, um, there are some notes that you can follow along with. And I'm really proud of my points this morning because they all begin with the letter P. And the reason they all begin with the letter P is because I stole the outline from, from someone else. And so they all are well alliterated, but you can follow along on the back of, of the bulletin. But this word for seeing is, is a very particular word. It's a word that doesn't mean to glance at something. It's a word that means to see it and understand it. If you've ever gotten a new vehicle, or maybe not a truly new vehicle, but a new-to-you vehicle, there's this incredible phenomenon that happens when you get a new vehicle. As you're driving around, what do you often see? You see that same vehicle driving around that you never saw before. Now, if you have some very classic car or very unique car, that doesn't happen to you. But, but for the rest of us, when we get something that's new to us and you start to drive, drive it around, you see something that you never saw before. Somehow your eyes are open and, and you're able to, to see something. When Amanda was pregnant with our first child, with our daughter, Austin, I had this incredible experience happen in my life. I saw teenage boys everywhere. I, I, teenage boys have existed for all of, all of history. But when my wife was pregnant with a daughter who was going to be my daughter and one day grew up to be a teenage daughter, all of a sudden while she was pregnant, I saw teenage boys. They multiplied like rabbits during that time. They were everywhere. It, you saw something that always existed, but you never saw it in that way before. And the word we use for this is the word perspective. Everyone has a perspective on the world. They see things in particular ways. Probably the best illustration for perspective is sports. Uh, The idea that you have two competing teams and then you have an umpire or a referee. And everyone has a perspective on calls that the referee or the umpire makes. And when they make a call, if it goes for your team, they had a perfect perspective on it. If it goes against your team, you yell things like, you're blind, Blue, or you, know, you can't see. Well, they really can see. They just had a different perspective on the situation than they do, than, than you did. All of us have a way of seeing things. And the reality is, and this is what I want us to understand this morning, At the very core of life, we have a seeing problem, not a strategy problem. Our core problem in life, and and this pertains especially to a church, our problem in life is how we see things. Sometimes as a church, if we're not careful, we think if we had a better strategy, or we had better programs, or we had better resources, then we would really make a difference in the world. But we don't have a strategy problem. Because people are not problems to be fixed. They're people, God's creation to be loved. And what really makes the difference in the world is how we see people. In the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says that if your eyes are good and healthy, your whole body will be full of light. 
But if your eyes are bad or your eyes are evil, your whole body will be full of darkness. What Jesus is saying is that the way you see people will ultimately impact the way that you treat people. And for me, oftentimes, I'm more concerned with how people view me than I am with how I view other people. And Jesus is saying, the issue is not how people view you. The, people, the, the issue is how do you see other people? And what we want to talk about this morning is what does it mean to see people with kingdom eyes? That's the reason you got that pair of paper sunglasses in your bulletin this morning, is that you would put those glasses on and you would think, not literally put them on, though some of you have already done that, you would take those glasses and think about what does it mean for me to see people the way Jesus sees people? And you say, okay, that's a good concept. How did Jesus see people? Look back at verse 36. It says, when he saw the people, he felt what? He felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. That word for compassion is a word that the root of it, the meaning of it, is not just an emotion, but it's a word for your stomach. So the word for compassion is a word for feeling this pain in your gut, in your stomach, because you're so burdened for someone. So if you want to write outside next to the word compassion, it's burdened in your gut is what that, what that word means. If you've had a child or a grandchild or a friend and you've seen them going the wrong direction in life, and you've thought to yourself, if you continue to go in that direction, I know what the result is going to be. And you get a sick feeling in your stomach. You are so burdened for that person that it's not just this emotion you have in your head, but it's something that you can't eat because you're so burdened in your stomach about the situation. That's the word compassion. The word compassion when we use it, too often means enabling. When it says Jesus saw the people and he had compassion on them, he doesn't, it doesn't mean that he enabled them to do whatever they wanted to. It didn't mean that he just felt sorry for them. It means that he was burdened in his stomach about it. Why? Because they were dispirited, no, distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. That word distressed is a word for weary or fatigued, You've been beaten down by your job. You've been beaten down by cancer. You've been beaten down by your family. You've been beaten down by the world we live in. This idea of just feeling exhausted. Some of you know the feeling all too well of going to sleep at night, waking up in the morning, and you feel more tired than you did when you went to sleep at night because life is just that difficult at that time. This is the word for for distressed. It's, I'm completely burdened down and weary. Uh, the word dispirited there is, is kind of a strange translation. Um, it's the idea of being thrown around. It's the idea that you have no stability in life. Imagine a boat out on the water that's being thrown side to side, or imagine your kids' rooms when you walk in and things have been scattered there's no structure, there's no arrangement to anything, clothes are everywhere, toys are everywhere. That's this word right here. Your life is literally torn apart and thrown in all these different directions. 
And then Jesus says that the people are like sheep without a shepherd. In other words, they wander aimlessly. There's no direction in life. So you're weary, your life has no stability, and you're wandering aimlessly. And you think to yourself, that's every person under the age of 30 that I know right now in the world. Like it just, we live, if you wanted to sum up living in 2015, you could take Matthew 9.36. People are tired, people have very little stability in their life, and many people are wandering aimlessly just trying to find some direction, some anchor for life. And it says that Jesus looked at those people with compassion. If this was Owen's verse, it would say that Owen looked at those people with frustration or annoyance or disdain or, or I just don't care. It, it's the Walmart Dollar General test. You walk in and you think, how do I view the people here? Am I annoyed by them? Am I frustrated by them? It's the generational test. If you look two generations under your own, how do you feel about those people? Are you annoyed by them? Are you frustrated by them? Or do you have compassion for them? Are, are we driven by this idea that we are burdened because we see people the way that God sees them? We see people in the same situation, like Corey said, that every one of us was in. Every word here that we were weary, that our life didn't have stability, that we were sheep without a shepherd, describes every one of us apart from Christ. What this verse does is it rescues us from the culture wars. The church is not at war with the culture. We're not at war with people around us. Our attitude toward people around us should be one of compassion, not war. We see people the way that Jesus sees them. And if you're here, And you're here not as a follower of Jesus, but you respect Jesus. You're curious about Christianity. You come to church out of respect for your family, but Jesus and Christianity and church just isn't really your thing. It's easy for people in our culture to think that the way God sees people is he's angry with them, he's frustrated with them, he's fed up with them, he's forgotten about them. Can I tell you that the way that God sees people is with compassion. So if you've wondered, I wonder what Jesus thinks about me, or I wonder what Jesus thinks about my friends or my family, there is one word that sums it up, and it's compassion. Jesus is burdened for you, and Jesus is burdened for your friends, and Jesus is burdened for the people you work with, and if we will see the world with kingdom eyes, we will see people in that same way. And so when our perspective is changed, and our passions are changed, the last couple of verses here say that our purpose and life will be changed. Look at verses 37 and 38. It says, Jesus spoke to the disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. That first word, harvest, there is a really common biblical word in the Old Testament to talk about the work that God does in in calling people to himself. The word harvest is particularly connected to a holiday called Pentecost. Last Sunday was Pentecost Sunday. And this idea that God, through the Spirit, would harvest people, would, would bring people into his kingdom. But 
the word harvest in the Old Testament was also connected with the idea of judgment. Because if you've grown up on a, how many of you have spent much time around a farm? Maybe you grew up on a farm, you've been to a farm, you accidentally drove past a farm. If you've been around farming, you know that the harvest only lasts for a particular amount of time. The crop isn't out there forever to be taken. There's a particular season, there's a particular time of year that you harvest, and then it's gone. And so for him to say that the harvest is plentiful, he's saying that right now is the time to respond to the Lord, because there is a time of judgment coming. But this week, there was one word that stood out to me from this passage more than any other. It's the word plentiful. Verse 37, the harvest is plentiful. What Jesus is telling his disciples is there are many, many people who are ready to respond to the good news of God's kingdom. But if we're not careful, we'll begin to think that the people in this room are pretty much the only people in the area who are interested in Jesus. That, you know what, this is probably about it. We've kind of reached the end. But God's word says that the harvest is plentiful. If we want to understand what plentiful means, we know that there are just over 4 billion people in the world who have never heard about Jesus. 4 billion is plentiful. But closer to home, there are thousands upon thousands of people that live in our area, that live in our county, who don't know about the good news of Jesus, but they are looking for hope, and they are looking for direction. There was a survey recently that said that 82% of people who are unchurched, meaning you have no connection with church at all, 82% of people who are unchurched said that they were somewhat likely to attend church if someone invited them. You know, somewhat likely means I'll probably be there and then they don't show up, but that doesn't matter. It means that they are receptive to it. They will listen to you talk to them about inviting them to church. 70% of people who are unchurched, 70% of people who are unchurched have never once been invited to church. That was an astounding statistic. It's backed up by data. I can send you to the website where it comes from. 70% of people who have no church affiliation say that no one has ever invited them once to come to church. The survey also studied another group of people and found that 2% of church attenders invited someone to come to church last year. 2% of people who attend church regularly invited an unchurched person to attend church with them. The harvest is plentiful. There are people looking for hope. There are people you work with who are weary. There are people in your family who have no stability. There are people around you who are looking for direction in life. They're available. The harvest is plentiful. The question is, are we ready to respond to that? And if we're not careful, we begin to think of people as projects or statistics. Here's tip number one. No one wants to be treated as a project. <laughs> and that includes me, me and you. If, if you're approaching someone or talking to someone and they get the feeling that they're your project, they're probably going to resist that almost immediately. But if they get the feeling that you care for them, that you are compassionate toward them, that you are burdened for them, that you love them, people are receptive to that. People are looking for that because you come to them and it says that the harvest is the Lord's. I think every one of us would raise our hand 
this morning and say, I don't want to proselytize someone. I'm not in the business of trying to convert someone. All of us feel uncomfortable about that. But what we shouldn't feel uncomfortable about is being compassionate towards someone, caring for someone, loving for someone, especially when we see that person weary and scattered and broken down and wandering through life without direction. So as we come to the end of of our time this morning, I want to give you three prayers that, that we can pray together. And these are listed in your bulletin there on the back, and they're also going to be up on the screen. But three prayers, and I would encourage you to pray these this week. The first is, Lord, teach me to see every moment of life with kingdom eyes. Lord, teach me to see every moment of life, where I live, where I work, where I play. Every moment, teach me to see people the way you see people. Teach me to see them with kingdom eyes. Here's what I would encourage you to do. Take that pair of glasses, if you didn't throw it in the trash can or throw it on the floor or something like that, if you still have that pair of glasses that came with your bulletin, let me encourage you to do something. If you're in school and they'll allow you, staple them to your backpack. Put it inside of one of your books. When you go to school next year, take it as a reminder that you're going to see school not as a burden, but as a kingdom opportunity. If you're allowed at work to put those glasses on your desk at work, or you're allowed to put them somewhere in your office at work, take those glasses and take them to work. And when you see them, be reminded that as much as I hate this job, or as much as I don't want to be here, as much as I'm looking for something else, there is a reason that I'm here, and I'm going to see the people at my work with kingdom eyes. I want to see them the way that Jesus sees them. If you are playing, and you're in hobbies, and you like to fish, or you like to hunt, or you like to go out and shop, or you like to do anything, take those glasses with you as a reminder that every moment of our lives we should see with kingdom eyes, that we would have compassion toward people, that we would see them the way that Jesus sees them. Here's another prayer to pray. Lord, give me someone today that I can talk to about Jesus. Give me someone today that I can talk to, someone this week that I can talk to about Jesus. You're not saying that you're going to have a 20-minute religious debate with them. In fact, you probably won't because none of us really enjoy that very much. But you're saying, I just want to talk to someone about Jesus because I know they're beaten down by life. I know their life is scattered in a thousand directions. I know that they're looking for direction. All I want to do is I want to talk to them about Jesus. Here's a good way to talk to them about Jesus. Carry around goofy-looking plastic or paper glasses. And people ask you, why do you have those glasses on your desk? That's an open door for a two-minute conversation to say, well, our pastor forced us to take them to work, and so this is why I have them. And you have a chance to talk to somebody about Jesus. Here's the last prayer. You may be here this morning, and you are weary, and your life is beaten down, and you're looking for direction, and your life feels scattered, Can I just tell you that you can pray and say, Lord, I need compassion, and I need hope, and I need the love of Christ that only he can provide. 
and he will answer that prayer, that he is there for you and that he is the provider of perfect compassion. And he has surrounded you with people who will care for you and pray for you and be there with you. Even when we are imperfect in that, we can learn to see people the way that Jesus sees them. 